So, uh, Pastor Reif is out of town today. He is, uh, at a men's conference, um, in Ohio, I believe. Um, if that's not where he's at, I apologize in advance. Um, but he has started a series talking about the lies that our flesh, the devil, and the world tells us. Right? And in this series, he's already started distinguishing the lies that we're told by, by those three things versus the truth that we find in Scripture. And so uh, each, in each one of these things, he's contrasted these lies versus this truth. And when he's contrasted these things, he's highlighted the truth of Scripture. But in that, sometimes we ask the question, well, how do we know what the Bible says is true? And what the world, the flesh, and the devil says is actually the lie. How can, how do we know that just because they're different, that the scripture is true versus, uh, the world being true? And so I, as believers, we trust that scripture is what it says it is. Uh, scripture tells us over and over again that it is God breathed. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, and we can look at multiple other verses that teach that. But the truth is, we believe that by faith. Right? Our, our, our Christian faith helps us believe that. Uh, in the same way that a Muslim believes that the Quran is the word of God. And so... When we hold to a position that scripture is true, a Muslim holds to a position that uh, the Quran is true, an atheist or agnostic holds to the position that neither one are true, then how do we respond to that? How do we answer that? And, and so today's message is going to be a little bit different. Okay, today's message, uh, I love the fact that uh, Pastor Doug and most of the um, people who speak here are expository preachers. We, on a Sunday morning, typically open the Word and we look at a passage and we read that passage and we dig into that passage and see what the Spirit is revealing to us in that passage. Today's going to be different in that we're going to look at arguments for Scripture being true. Be- because if we just make the statement, well, Scripture is true because it says it's true, that's a circular argument. I mean, I can stand up here and I can say, hey, I'm the king of Texas. And you're going to say, you don't look like George Strait. But, uh, <laughs> but seriously, if I, if I made that statement, if I were mentally off a little bit and I said, hey, I am the king of Texas. And you say, well, why do you think that? And I say, well, because I say I am. That's not a lot of validity to that, right? And so what would you want to do? If you were going to try to persuade me, you would want to look at other evidences which either align with the position I'm taking or disprove the position I'm taking. And that's the same thing we can do with Scripture. Yes, we believe Scripture is true because God tells us it is, and we believe that by faith, but God doesn't call us to have a blind faith. God calls us to to have faith to believe in something that's true, and we should be able to point to evidences that align with and uphold that position of truth. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. 
Um, but before we jump in to look at some of these uh, arguments, let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for the op- opportunity, Lord, to to speak about your word and to look into it and to look at evidences for it. Father, I pray your anointing on this time together. Lord, uh, possibly there's believers in here who um, are having some types of struggles. Possibly there are um, people who are seekers who are just questioning, Lord, um, and this could be a chance to help uh, answer some questions about how you've revealed yourself to us through your word. We ask that this time is beneficial. We ask that it's edifying. We ask that it draws us closer to you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first question we want to ask when we're talking about the trustworthiness of the Bible, is the Bible true, is we have to ask, do we have what was originally written? When, when we hold up the Bible, do we have an accurate representation about what was originally written? And, and so... Most of you probably know this, but the Bible wasn't written by someone who had Microsoft Word on their laptop, and we have the master document, right? We So when we go to Washington, D.C. with the eighth graders, we get to go by and we see the Declaration of Independence, and it's locked up in this super tight case, and it has these special gases in it that help preserve it and all that stuff. And it's, it's the original document. Okay. We don't have that for scripture. We don't have the original documents. We don't have the original book of Matthew. We don't have the original Genesis. And, and the truth is we don't have any originals of any ancient piece of literature. We, we just don't have them. And so what we have here is a book We call it a book, but it's actually 66 books written by over 40 authors over the course of about 1,500 years. That's what we have. And because we don't have any of the originals, and what we call those are autographs, because we don't have any of the autographs, what we have to do is recreate them based on the copies of the autographs that we do have. And so... Um, a couple of the questions we ask when we do this. Uh, the first question we ask is, well, how many copies of those books do we have? How many copies um, do we have of all those books put together? And the answer is very overwhelming. Uh, when we talk about just the New Testament, we have over 6,000 Greek copies of the New Testament. That was that had been handwritten. Um, when you look at all the other materials, um, we have over twenty four thousand manuscripts. If you so, I like charts because it's visual and you can see um, the, the first the first bar there is just Greek manuscripts for the New Testament. Uh, the second bar there is the amount of total manuscripts we have, over twenty four thousand. Now, how does that compare to other ancient works of literature? So the, the next highest one is Homer's The Iliad, and it has 1,900. And that's the next highest uh, manuscript count. And here's the thing. You don't ever hear anyone go, we can't trust the Iliad because we don't have the originals. No. People like, no, we have you know, copies of the Iliad, and we compare them, and it's great. We have 
24,000 copies of the New Testament that we can compare and see their alignment and see that God preserved his word. The next question we ask is, how close to the original autographs are the copies? And so when, when you're making these copies, um, you want to get your, you, it's better to have copies closest to the original. So the New Testament was written roughly between 50 and uh, 90 AD, depending on how you date each book. Um, we have, we have copies which date back to within 25 to 50 years of the original. Now, if you're younger, that sounds really old, right? 50 used to sound ancient to me. 50 is just a blink of an eye now, right? Um, but once again, when you compare to other ancient works of literature, the gap is outstanding. Some of the gaps are 1,500 years between when it was written and the earliest manuscript evidence we have of it. And so when you look at the manuscript evidence of the New Testament, it's overwhelming. And so there's a process called textual criticism. Okay, and so textual criticism is spoken of a lot in regards to the Bible, but textual criticism actually, once again, replies to any ancient, uh, any ancient literary writing. Okay, it's considered a science. Uh, and in this process of textual criticism, they take these manuscripts and they compare them with one another and they help recreate the original. Okay, And so many people look at that and say, well, the copies we have of Scripture have thousands of errors in them. We can't trust them at all. And the truth is this. When you compare manuscripts with one another, there are variances at time. There are differences. Okay, So uh, if you have your Bible, I just want you to look at it. Okay, If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you. Um, Once again, I want us to put things into context a little bit because... We live in this idea where we can just pull something up on the Internet or we can just print something. Um, that's not how things have always worked, right? And so when we were, when people were making copies of Scripture or of any other work, they had to do it by hand. Uh, in our sophomore Bible class here, we have a project where students have to handwrite a chapter of the Bible and they have to do it without any mistakes. It cannot be turned in with a single mistake. They can't spell a word wrong. They can't mark through it. If, if you get to the last sentence and you skip a word, you can't do the little arrow and draw it in right there, right? You got to start all over. And we do that for the purpose of showing how difficult that process was. And so if you hear someone criticize the trustworthiness of Scripture because, oh, there were thousands of errors in the manuscripts. There are thousands of errors. But guess what? Ninety-ish percent of them or more come down to misspelled words, words being repeated again, uh, words being skipped by accident, so on and so forth. If you stop and think about the mistakes you would make handwriting the entire Bible, Those are the mistakes that crept into the text. And because we have 24,000 of them to compare with one another, it's really easy to compare them and see what the original is. Okay, And that's what the process of textual criticism does. And so people work on this who aren't even believers. 
They, they just study these ancient manuscripts and they recreate these documents. And the process of textual criticism tells us that we can trust that we have what was originally written with a 99.4% degree of accuracy. That's not believers telling us that. That's not the church telling us that. That is scientists that work through the process of textual criticism tell us we have so much evidence that it's 99.4% uh, reliable that we have what was originally written. Once again, God doesn't call us to have a blind faith. God calls us to have faith in the things that the evidence points towards, right? And so we can rest knowing that we have what was originally written. But the next question is, how do we know what was originally written is true? It's great that we have the Gospel of Matthew, but what if Matthew uh, was just, you know, had some bad mushrooms the night before? And, right? How do we know what was originally written is actually true? The New Testament and, and Scripture in general claims over and over again to be eyewitnesses to the things that it records. Second Peter 1.16 says, for we do not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, hey, I didn't just hear about these things. I saw it. We were eyewitnesses. First John says, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed, and what we have touched with our hands. Remember when Thomas was doubting and and Jesus appears to him and he says, hey, come touch. And Thomas actually touched the nail scars. John says, we've touched it with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you that eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. Scripture absolutely claims to be eyewitnesses to the events that it records. So, either they're telling the truth, and they actually saw and heard and touched everything that was recorded there, or they were lying. Right? That's really the only options we have. We, we have, we know that we have what they wrote originally, and we know that they claimed that what they wrote, they saw with their own eyes. So now we either have to believe them, or we have to think that they're lying. So, if they were lying, there are some things that don't add up. If they were lying, why would they include so many embarrassing stories about themselves? Truthfully, like if I'm Peter and I'm making this whole thing up, dude, I'm not going to sink in the water after one step. I'm going to be like, I jumped out of that boat and I ran a hundred yard dash on those waves. And then Jesus and I high fived and we made fun of the apostles that didn't get it right. Like I'm not going to make up. Oh, I took a step and then I sank. I'm not going to make up stories about arguing with one another about who's the greatest. I'm not going to make up stories 
about abandoning Jesus at his arrest and crucifixion. I'm not going to make those things up. Why would they have put written themselves in such a negative light? Even with Jesus, there are some passages in the New Testament, there are some passages in the Gospels that if I'm trying to convince someone that he's the son of God, I'm not going to include those things. When he goes to Nazareth and um, it, it says only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is he a prophet without honor. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people. If I'm making this stuff up, I'm not going to include that in there. I'm not going to include the Garden of Gethsemane where he's asking God to take this cup from him. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. Let's just go a step further. If I'm making all this stuff up, I'm not going to make it near as hard to live by. Right. All that stuff about love your enemies. I ain't going to cover that. I'm like pound your enemies in the face and then hit them with a stick. Like that would be the gospel according to Neil. Thankfully, we don't have that. Um, why would they make it such a difficult faith to follow if they were lying? Most importantly, why would they die for it? And so, um, if you stop and you think about what the apostles gained from carrying this message to the world. They didn't become rich. They didn't become famous in their lifetime. Here's the thing. Once again, we have a complete different picture of Christianity today. There, you know, there are some mega church pastors that get paid really, really, really well. And I'm not knocking that at all, but I could see there being benefit today for some people. But not in the first century. What, what did they get? Every one of them except for one died a martyr's death. And John, John got to live uh, to an old age, but he was, he was persecuted, he, he was tortured, he was beaten. Every one of them suffered for it. And so here's the thing. We go to, um, on senior trip, we go to the 9-11 memorial. Uh, if you can go to that next picture. Here's, a, here's our, this past class trip, we're looking at uh, where the actual Twin Towers stood. So... The, the place is just a phenomenal place to go visit um, the outside. What they've done is the actual places where they stood, there are these, um, these pools there. And, and this is our class looking over, and it's a very somber, solemn moment. And, and the reason that there's a 9-11 museum is because there was a group of believers that believed their faith called them to wage war on those who didn't believe, right? Terrorists believed that their faith called them to attack these two buildings. And so these people died for a lie. They absolutely did. And here's the thing. People die for lies all the time. I've never heard of someone dying for a lie that they knew was a lie. If you're telling me that the apostles made up the gospel, what you're telling me is they willingly suffered abuse and torture and arrest 
and ultimately death for what they knew was a lie and for what they knew was blasphemy. It just doesn't make sense. So the New Testament records to be eyewitnesses, and it makes absolutely no sense that they would be lying about that. So the next question we ask, is there anything else that argues for the truthfulness of Scripture? Is there any other evidences that argue that Scripture is true? Well, the next one I'm going to talk about is what about fulfilled prophecy? Does prophecy argue for the fact that Scripture is true? One, one scholar estimates that over 25% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. Now, most prophets, most prophecies were actually fulfilled during the prophet's lifetime. Right? That's how people could verify whether they were prophets or not. Uh, you go back and you read through all of the kings and chronicles and things like that, and you have, um, you have Isaiah prophesying one thing, then you have all these other false prophets saying, no, God said he's going to bless us and we're going to be able to conquer Babylon. And, and how do we know who's the real prophet? By what comes true, right? And so the majority of prophecy was fulfilled in that prophet's lifetime. But there are some prophecies that were prophesying things that happened well into the future. And we have what we call messianic prophecies all throughout the Old Testament. Prophecies that spoke something about what the Messiah would do. A scholar named Alfred uh, Edersheim says that conservatively, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. That's conservatively. Some of the major ones, that he would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7.14. He would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2. He would suffer and die. Isaiah 53. The crucifixion, which, by the way, didn't even exist yet, but Psalm 22 tells us the way in which the Messiah would die. His hands and his feet would be pierced. Written hundreds of years before the Roman Empire came into power and used that as a form of capital punishment. So Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his Earthly ministry. So there were a couple of statisticians named Peter Stoner and Robert Newman in their book, Science Speaks, said that the chance of just fulfilling eight of the hundreds of prophecies Jesus fulfilled. So if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, if Jesus isn't who the New Testament says that he is, if he's just some random guy that got lucky and fulfilled all of these things, what are the chances of that? The chances of that are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is uh, 1 in 100 quadrillion. And I, I, the, the 17 is not superscripted. I apologize for that, Ms. Cutshaw, wherever you're at. I saw you earlier. I, I'll get an email for that later. I'm very sorry. Um, that's why I don't teach calculus or Pre-algebra, for that matter. Um, one in 100 quadrillion. Here's the thing. You might as well say one in googly moogly to me, right? I have no concept of what that number is. So what does that mean? Like, how do you even put context to that? Um, there, there's a great example that they give. 
Okay, so this is a silver dollar. This is the old school silver dollar. I think there's newer ones now. But back in the day, this was the silver dollar. Okay? If you take this silver dollar, 100 quadrillion silver dollars will cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Okay? And in case you didn't know, the state of Texas is kind of big, right? 801 miles north to south, 773 miles east to west. Two feet deep in these. Okay? And I take a red mark and I put a red mark on one of them. And I mix it around somewhere. And I say, okay, Lance, you have one chance out of all the state of Texas to find the one red mark, silver dollar. That's the same chance you have for just an ordinary person fulfilling just eight of the messianic prophecies Jesus fulfilled. Statistically, it's impossible. Fulfilled prophecy argues for the fact that Jesus is who he says he is and that scripture is true, that we can trust the Bible. So another evidence, does science prove or disprove the Bible? So, so there's a common narrative that faith and science in our culture are at odds with one another. And that if you're a scientist, you can't believe in God. That narrative is absolutely false. Uh, even if you ask scientists, uh, over 50% of scientists, what you would consider scientists, believe that there is a God in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Um, they don't. Some of the greatest, my, even some of the greatest minds today in, in the field of science are, are believers. And, and so this narrative that Faith and science, you know, are in direct contradiction with one another absolutely is not true. And so we could talk about the cosmological argument, how that, um, you know, science, all of science theory right now says the universe had a beginning. Well, if anything has a beginning, it has to have a cause, right? And so the universe had a beginning, so the universe has a cause, and that cause is God. Uh, you could talk about the teleological argument, the argument from design. Like our DNA, every single person in here has DNA. Every living creature has DNA. DNA is literally a language. It's it's a building block. It's a a blueprint. Okay? If, If you're going to build a building, you're going to look at blueprints, and those blueprints don't just pop up out of the air magically. No. Someone designs them. Right? And so all these things point to the fact that there's a God, but specifically in regards to Scripture. Is Scripture trustworthy? Um, I, want, I want to talk to you about just one specific archaeological evidence. So uh, this past fall, we took the juniors and seniors to Prestonwood for uh, their, they have a worldview event for every every year that you can take students to. And Dr. Scott Stripling is an archaeologist. Um, and he made a couple of presentations. And so if you'll go to the next slide, um, he's an archaeologist in the Holy Land. And so he was doing work on in and around uh, Mount Ebal. And so if you remember, the nation of Israel uh, 
has to wander the wilderness because of disobedience for 40 years. Moses dies. Joshua takes his place. And God uses Joshua to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. Okay? And when he leads them into the promised land, once they get into the promised land, um, God has them to build an altar. And so uh, archaeologically, we, we know that this site is the site of the altar that Joshua built. So the stuff that's on top is actually not Joshua's altar. Uh, it, it was added later, but they, they've gone down and they've been able to dig underneath and around it. And they found the area and the actual stones they believe are Joshua's altar. But that's not even the coolest part of it. Um, if you'll go to the next slide. In their digging, they found this lead tablet. Uh, this lead tablet is overwhelmingly accepted as the greatest archaeological discovery in the uh, in our century to date, and one of the greatest discoveries of all time. This is um, it's called Joshua's Curse Tablet. And, and so, once again, I don't teach science, and, and I can't give you all the technical stuff of it. But they've sent this tablet off. They were able to date it based on. Um, the, based on the stuff that they had found around it, the pottery shards and the, uh, this, this, that, and the other, they, they were able to date it to the time of Joshua. And they were able to take this um, and send it to Europe and x-ray it and read what is actually written on this lead tablet. And what is written on this lead tablet directly reflects Deuteronomy 11 and Joshua 8. So, when Joshua built that altar that we looked at, God told him, take half of the people of Israel and set them on Mount Gerizim and have them read blessings. And take half of the people and set them on Mount Ebal and have them read curses. And so they went through the law together and basically they this side would read, God's going to bless you and protect you if you hold this. And this side would read, God's going to curse you if you don't uphold his law. And and this tablet says, cursed, cursed, cursed by God, Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. It directly reflects what Deuteronomy 11 and Joshua 8 tells us occurred back then. And so here's some more significance about this. This is the first time, this is by far the oldest date we have of the personal name given to God, Yahweh, by far. It, the, the oldest one before this was hundreds of years after, hundreds of years. And we have the personal name of Yahweh dating back to the time that directly aligns with when Joshua led the people into the children of Israel. It's direct evidence for the fact that the Exodus occurred. People try to argue all the time, well, there's no archaeological evidence for the Exodus. Yes, there is. It's right here. God's leading, Joshua's leading them into the nation of Israel. Their scholarship at one point tried to argue that Moses couldn't write the first five books of the Bible because their language didn't exist at that time. Like the the uh, Hebrew people at that time didn't have a written language. That directly contradicts this. This discovery directly contradicts that. Uh, Dr. Stripling was presenting this uh, to a church in Houston. 
And the pastor stopped him in the middle of his presentation and said, wait, are you telling me that Moses knew Yahweh's name and that Moses had the ability to write it? And Dr. Strickland said, absolutely. And the pastors, a pastor of a church started crying and said, I've been taught my whole life that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch because he couldn't write. You're telling me that what scripture says is true. And he said, yes, absolutely. Archaeological evidence proves over and over and over again scripture is true. I, I could list dozens. I have a book in my office, over 99 archaeological discoveries which validate what scripture says. Here's the thing, I, and I'm, it, you can look at claims made in the Book of Mormon that have been refuted and, and proved false over and over and over again by archaeology. You can't find that in in scripture you can't find archaeological discoveries which directly contradict scripture scripture proves itself to be true and archaeology confirms it scripture is verified over and over by science next does scripture prove itself to be true does scripture prove itself to be true there the truth is this when you read the pages of Scripture, it's countercultural. God calls us to live in a way which is different from what the world tells us to live, right? You, you look at certain passages. Um, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are they that mourn because they will be comforted. It's not a popular saying. The world doesn't tell you that. And here's the thing. Does it say, hey, you're going to be super happy when your husband dies. You're going to be super happy when you go through a a terrible time. No, it doesn't say that. What it says is you will be blessed when you mourn. And, And why does it say you'll be blessed? Because you will be comforted. I look back at the times in my life, the times I have been closest to God, and it's the times when I have had the most pain in my life. God has made himself real to me and more intimate to me in the times that I was grieving more than anything else. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't seek those times out. I don't go looking for them. But when they occur, and if you've lived, if you've lived life for any time at all, you've been through them. When they occur, God makes himself real. He blesses us and he comforts us. I want to show you another picture. So, you're like, oh, well, that's a patch of concrete. What does that have to do with anything? This is um, a picture from the Dominican Republic. So we're we're taking a mission trip there in June. Um, I was scheduled to go on that mission trip, but my son decided to plan his wedding that week. Uh, and I still wanted to go, but my wife said, no, you have to go to the wedding. So, um, so I got to go with Pastor Doug in January. And, and so uh, part of what, what the trip is going to do is go visit a Haitian refugee camp um, named New Jerusalem. 
um, and, and in this Haitian camp. And so if you don't know geography, um, the Dominican Republic and Haiti are on. They share the same island. Um, and Haiti is in absolute chaos right now. It has been, but it's probably worse now than it's been in my lifetime. There's literally no federal government. It's just anarchy, truly. And so uh, there's a mountain range that divides the country, and millions of Haitians have come into the Dominican. And the Dominican is, is setting them up, giving them these plots of land, and um, basically saying, hey, you take care of yourself. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, and so we're supporting several churches and several works in uh, this certain area. And one of the works is led by a Haitian pastor named Edison. Um, and this is at Edison's church. And, and man, Edison's story is unbelievable, um, but just a, a small portion of it. So many Haitians are Christian, but there are also many Haitians that practice voodoo. Okay, And so uh, when Edison established his church, um, a uh, voodoo priest bought the property immediately next to him. And when I'm saying next to him, I'm saying like from that booth to the other booth. Like it was that close. And uh, this voodoo priest would do everything he could to be a disruption to the church and to their services and to Edison, uh, all, everything around it, right? And, and so once again, if we lived by the gospel of Neil, Edison would have just got some guys together and gone and taken care of it, right? And then, hey, there's no more voodoo priests to mess with. But that's not what the gospel tells us to do. Jesus said to love your enemies, to bless them that curse you. And so what Edison and the church did was this, this voodoo priest just had a lean-to house. Uh, literally, uh, there, are, there are places, I, I visited a home there that's not, it was probably about that size, but it had the house around it, and 17 people were living in it. That's the conditions they have. Um, almost no one has concrete floors. Edison and the church members paid for and did all the work to pour this voodoo priest a floor, a concrete floor for his house. Bless those that curse you, literally. It wasn't long after that, that the voodoo priest came to Edison and offered his property to sell to the church. And it did go back and forth a few times, but the voodoo priest sold his property to the church, and they were able to buy it and make it part of their church property. Now, here's the thing. Every time you bless those that curse you, that's not going to happen. It's not. I wish it would, but it doesn't. But regardless of the outcome, they did what was right. And they had peace about it. Scripture tells us to do things that are countercultural, but they prove themselves to be true. The Bible proves itself to be true. And so lastly, we've talked about a lot of evidences for the Bible. The best way to know if the Bible is true is to spend time with it. 
The best way to know the Bible is true is to spend time with it. So here's the thing. If you've been to my office, if you've heard my cell phone, or if you've been around me at all, you know my favorite superhero is Batman, right? Um, I, I love Batman. Um, and so who do people like when you talk about someone's favorite, it's always either Batman or typically who? Superman, right? Superman, dude, Superman just has powers because he's on another planet. Like he would be a normal, ordinary guy with nothing special about him if he were back on his own planet. All right. And so um, what's the main difference between Superman and Batman? Money. One has superpowers and one's a billionaire, right? Which lets him do all of these, have all these cool gadgets. But here's the thing. The, the gadgets are cool, but it's the work that Batman put in, right? Training his body, the, the intellect, all of that. I, um, I'm a Batman apologist. I'm sorry. Um, it, but really, when you talk about superheroes, you talk about um, all these comic book guys and ladies, you kind of have that. Most of them have some type of superpower that's been given to them, right? But there are some guys like Batman that just have an incredible work ethic, highly skilled, and probably a lot of money. Um, but then you have a, a couple of unique ones. There are a few comic book guys that are normal people, but can do something to then get special powers, right? Um, you look at uh, Green Lantern. Green Lantern is just a normal guy, right? Until what? Until he puts on the ring. Yeah? And then he gets superpowers from the ring. Billy Batson uh, is a teenage boy, normal teenager. Until he says the word Shazam, and he turns into an invincible superhero, right? So here's the thing. What if I gave you a ring and said, hey, put this ring on, and you're going to have incredible superpowers. How many of you are just going to put the ring on your nightstand or on your dresser? Or in your gym bag and find it three years later um, and never put it on. Like if someone tells me that, I'm immediately going to put it on, right? I'm going to see how high I can jump, see if I can fly, do whatever. I'm going to see what I can do. No one would just leave it laying on the dresser. I want you to grab the Bible in front of you again. In a very real way, what I just described is what many of us do with Scripture. We question how we can know God. But we don't ever read or immerse ourselves in the most important way he's given to reveal himself to us. God supernaturally, through men and women just like you and I, revealed himself to us through this book. 
He's answered all the biggest questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? The answers are in this book. And and so I know you can say, hey, I just don't know if the book is true. I, I, I don't know why is it, you know, how can I know it's just not some other story? Have you read it? Because it claims to be the word of God. It claims to be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce asunder soul and spirit. It promises not to return void. And so here's the thing. Hold it to its own standard. Read it. See if it proves itself to be true to you. But don't just leave it laying on the nightstand. Pick it up and use it. The same God that spoke to Joshua on Mount Ebal, the same God that parted the Red Sea from Moses, the same God that fed 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves of bread, is the same God that's desiring to speak to you today and have a relationship with you today. And he has revealed himself to us in many different ways, but none more clear than in his word. If you want to know if his word is true, immerse yourself in it and find out. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Truly, I know that a message like this many times is difficult to to respond to. Um, when I prayed through this message, I thought about a couple of things. Lord, Lord, why do you want me to speak on this? And how is it going to help? And here's the thing. Maybe you're a believer who has struggles and who has doubts and who has some questions. And hopefully this was an affirmation for you. Maybe you just needed an encouragement and a reminder to to be in his word more consistently. Maybe you're here and you, you you don't consider yourself a believer. You've not made that step of faith yet. And you have some legitimate questions. Maybe this helped answer a few of them. Maybe it brought some more up. Here's the thing. God is not afraid of your questions. Not at all. And I'm not telling you I have all the answers. I promise you I don't. My wife will gladly verify that. Um, But I'll I'll be glad to help you find them. So in this time of worship, I I encourage you, if nothing else, respond in worship in, in thankfulness to the fact that God revealed us. Respond in worship in seeking out help for maybe those questions you have. Respond in worship in maybe taking that step of faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your word. I I confess I take it for granted far too often. I thank you that you revealed yourself to us in it. And most of all, Father, I thank you that you revealed your son to us in it. Father, it's in him and his work that we stand righteous not from our own works, but from the blood of your son who paid for our sins. Father, it's in him that we can walk victoriously. And Father, it's in him that we stand right now and we worship you in. Father, I pray that your will is done 
in this service that you will have done in this worship song, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.